You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 again this Sunday. And uh, looking at verses 14 to 29, I want to uh, say good morning again to all of you who are here. I'm Pastor Quentin, and uh, welcome to church. Uh, welcome, Redemption. Uh, we are excited to be here with God's Word open before us, worshiping Him in spirit and truth, exalting Him and Him alone. Well, last week in the Scriptures, we witnessed a massive, trans, a massive transition in the mission of Christ. Uh, by the way, the, the ushers have Bibles. If you guys want a Bible, just slide your hand up. They'll bring one to you. Uh, but last week, we witnessed a massive transition in Jesus' approach to his disciples as he sent them out. Last week, we, wished him, we witnessed him send out 12 disciples, sending them out two by two on mission in the known world of Galilee at that time, instantly multiplying his gospel effectiveness sixfold. If you remember, he, he empowered them to do the same miracles that he was doing. He gave them authority to teach just like him. And he, and he sent them out with nothing else but the clothes they had on their backs, the sandals they had on their feet, the staff they had in their hands. They had no bag. They had no food. They had no money. They had no outer tunic to stay warm at nighttime. They, had, they, had, they didn't have enough to survive. On their own. And they had to be fully dependent on the Lord to provide. And He provided through those who would receive them. And those who wouldn't receive them, they were to walk away and they were to shake the dust off their feet in judgment against them. And then they would move on to the next village and preach the gospel and heal people. Verse 12 to 13 last week said, So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. That is the gospel. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed him. So we've seen that Jesus multiplied himself. And through that, as a church, we applied that to ourselves as mission-critical truths that we need to follow just as they followed. That God's mission requires gospel replication it depends on gospel generosity, it evaluates gospel efforts, and it succeeds through gospel submission. Therefore, we as a church must multiply. We must depend, we must discern, and we must obey. So God's plan has not changed. It goes forth the same way. This is how he fulfills his mission to the end of the earth. And we love that, because that's who he is, that's what he does. He sends out his disciples. And then, and then we were left wondering last week, well, how effective was their mission? How effective was this, this short mission that we've seen in Galilee? Well, we're going to see that today here in Mark chapter 6, verse 14. Sorry, Mark, Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 29. And we're going to look at the account of a fearless prophet, a foolish king, a vindicative woman, and a shameless girl. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is holy and righteous and that you are gracious and merciful to us. Thank you for your word that is open before us. These words written down for our instruction, for our equipping, for your glory. We pray that your spirit would be mightily at work in us today. Pray that your spirit would be mightily at work in me today. As, we, as I preach your word, Lord, I ask that you would move me aside and that you would teach your people. Lord, we come here under the, under the grace and mercy of you. And Lord, we come here weak and needy yet again today, both myself and our people. Apart from you, we have no strength. Apart from you, we come with nothing. But Lord, we thank you for your spirit and your word that guides us. Lord, do your work in us again today. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. 
King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. A fearless prophet, a foolish king, a vindicative woman, and a shameless girl. Brothers and sisters, what we're going to see in, in this account, we can still see today. And we can have biblical confidence that the harder the world presses, the further the gospel advances. The harder the world opposes, the further the gospel goes. As the disciples obediently went out in, in the power of Jesus Christ, we see that their work was not in vain. In fact, their work was not in vain at all. The news of Jesus has spread all the way to the highest ruler in Galilee. Back to verse 14, King Herod. King Herod heard of it. What did he hear? For Jesus' name had become known. And in their puzzlement, some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Brothers and sisters, the first thing we see in these first few verses is that the world will be confounded. The world will be confounded at the spread of the fame of Jesus Christ. The gospel is actually doing something. And so we need to be bold in our witness. So let's start by looking at who Herod is here. Who is this Herod? And why are he, he and others confounded by the fame of Jesus? Well, this King Herod may not be the, the Herod that you're thinking of, the Herod that killed all the two-year-old boys in Bethlehem and surrounding area. Remember, he was trying to kill Jesus uh, as a child. No, that was, that was Herod, Herod the Great, okay? Herod the Great was king of Judea from 37 B.C. right up until 4 B.C. when he died. And he was indeed great. In his lifetime, he, he accomplished amazing things. Built many palaces, built many cities, and the most magnificent is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. 
No, the Herod that we see here is, is one of his three sons. In fact, he had five sons, but these are the three sons that were overseeing all the land of Judea because King Herod died in 4 B.C. And so these three sons ruled over, we got a map here, they ruled over four regions. So Herod Philip ruled over the northern region of Trachonitis. Herod Archelaus uh, ruled over Judea and Samaria. And then the Herod in this text is, is Herod Antipas. Don't confuse that with Antipasto. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea. That's all the area that Jesus and his disciples were ministering. Now you have to know that the Herodian family loved their royalty. But their family tree was something else. Their family tree was messed up. We're going to look at that later. But for now, what you need to know is that this Herod Antipas, was, he was the big guy in Galilee. He was the big cheese. He was, he was the head. He was the ruler over the area, area under the Roman rule. But he was the, the, he was the head guy. And this ruler has now heard about Jesus. The news of the gospel of Jesus has reached his royal ears. And verse 14 starts, and it says that King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Well, what he heard of is the fame of Jesus and the proclamation of repentance. The gospel of Jesus Christ that has been carried along with the disciples, with the twelve and through their efforts, this news has met his ears. For Jesus' name had become known. Everybody in Galilee was talking about him. And so in response to the fame of Jesus, what we see here is that, that King Herod and all those who are around him are beginning to wonder who he is. Why is he so famous? And so they were perplexed. They were puzzled. They were in wonderment. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Why is he so famous? They would have known about his power, how he heals and how he delivers and how he teaches, and they'd be wondering, how does he do such amazing things? Kind of like those in Nazareth, remember? They were wondering where he got his power. So these People may have been thinking, where does he get his power? Who is he? Who is this Jesus? Because why? Because they couldn't deny his fame. They couldn't deny what was being said about him. And so what we see here is that Jesus' popularity begs an answer. And so they start digging into what they know, right? They start, who is this guy? They're trying to explain who he is. So it says that some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. We're going to talk about John's death a little later. But some people here are thinking, perhaps John the Baptist, who has been killed, has somehow miraculously been risen from the grave. Which kind of obviously reveals that these people really don't know much about Jesus or John the Baptist. They don't know that they're cousins. They don't know that they live together at the same time. They don't know that John baptized Jesus. It just doesn't make sense, right? So these people are really disconnected from what's going on here. How could Jesus, the resurrected bapt how could Jesus be the resurrected baptizer, right? Even more so, John himself in the scriptures is never recorded to doing any miracles. So their thinking is, is really distracted and disconnected from the truth. These opinions that they had come from little knowledge, but they're digging. Verse 15 says some others are digging as well. Others said he's Elijah. So this group knows a little bit more. Uh, they knew of the Old Testament scriptures, how in Malachi uh, it spoke about an Elijah-type person who was prophesied to come to, before the end of the world, world Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But what they didn't understand was that Jesus was not this Elijah. John the Baptist was, in fact, this Elijah-type prophet. He was the final prophet, Matthew eleven thirteen to 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. 
So John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah. But again, we see them digging even some more. In their bewilderment, the people are trying to figure out who Jesus was. It says, others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So they knew that the Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Elisha could do miraculous things under the power of God. And so they think, well, maybe if he's not John the Baptist, maybe he's just another miraculous prophet. Whatever the case, the people were digging. They needed to explain this phenomena of Jesus Christ. They couldn't deny it. Jesus begs an answer. Jesus was now the most famous person in all of Galilee, and his fame has reached the very top. Massive crowds were following him. Many people were being changed by him, miraculously changed, transformed. And they all said it was because of this man named Jesus. The power, the transformation, the reputation of Jesus Christ cannot be denied. And even more so today. As, as Christ's faithful disciples share the good news today from horizon to horizon. As lives are being transformed every day. As churches are being established and planted across the globe. As his name is being taken to the ends of the earth. The world cannot deny that there's something about this Jesus. His fame is too popular. His following is too pervasive. You can't turn a blind eye to it. And so yes, even today, the world will be confounded. It is being confounded. It is being bewildered at the spread of Christ's fame. Just stop and think about it for a minute. Think about the number of Christians across the globe. According to Pew Research Center, the number of Christians around the world has quadrupled in the last 100 years. According to the Joshua Project, about 22% of the world's population are nominal adherents to Christianity. That's a pretty big umbrella. But according to the Joshua Project, 10% of the world's population are evangelical, born-again, God-glorifying Christ followers. 10%. Sometimes we share these and, and, and we share it negatively. Let's look at how positive this is. 10% of the world are evangelical Christians. Christ followers. It's amazing. Now how does that happen? That comes through the bold sharing of the gospel. We see that through the disciples here. We see that today there are 760 million brothers and sisters in Christ across the planet. You have 760 million brothers and sisters in Christ. It's awesome. And what's really interesting today also is that the largest groups of Christians are no longer in Europe, no longer in North America, no longer in Western society. The largest groups of Christians today are in Asia, in Africa. The gospel is expanding. And it all started with Jesus and these 12 faithful disciples going boldly into the region of Galilee, spreading the fame of Christ's name. The fame of Christ is spreading across the world, and the world is being confounded. I don't know if you're following what's happening to our Chinese brothers and sisters right now. 60 million Chinese are Christians. That's twice the population of our country. 60 million. They're Christians. And all of that is happening as they are facing extreme persecution. 
They're living under the oppression of a communist government. Left and right today, churches are being demolished in China. Pastors and church members are being arrested and put in prison. The government is trying to do everything they can in their power to stop the fame of Jesus Christ from spreading. They've enforced regulations that makes it illegal to teach people under 18 about Jesus. They've banned all online Bible sales. Thousands of crosses have been taken down in churches in the last year. They're being forced to take down crosses and put up Chinese flags in church and sing patriotic songs. And they hate, they hate the message of Jesus so much that the government in China right now is planning on retranslating the whole Bible to include their views of extreme socialism and Confucianism. The fame of Jesus is bewildering the Chinese government. And they're doing everything they can to try to stop it. The world is being confounded at the spread of Christ's name. So what do we do about this? Does this mean that, that we shirk back here? That we pull back? That we give up? No, it doesn't. It means that we continue going. We continue proclaiming. We go to the outermost reaches of the world. The fame of Jesus cannot be denied. It's causing rulers and governments to be confounded at who he is, but the gospel progresses. And so we need to be confident in this. We need to be confident that the harder the world presses, the further the gospel advances. And so we need to be bold. We need to be that much bolder. We need to be in awe of who Jesus is and let that drive us to our boldness, his gracious love and his gospel towards us and to the lost. So let's be bold in our witness. Now, as we look at Herod here, and we see others that are with him, and they're being confounded, they're being confused and bewildered at the fame of Jesus. They're trying to figure out who he is, why he's so famous. We see in the next verses, verses 16 to 20, that the world will be confronted by the conduct of his people, and that we need to be faithful in our walk. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful that you have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. So the first thing we see is that Herod's interpretation of the fame of Jesus is made out of fear. He thinks Jesus is the resurrected John the Baptist, right? Because he killed him. He's thinking he came back from the dead after he beheaded him because John confronted him about his sinful choices. If you remember the last time we saw John in the Gospel of Mark, it was back in chapter 1, verse 14. And, and in that, we, all we knew was that John was arrested. We didn't know why. But the text then never explained Never explained why he was arrested, and that's what we get to see here in verse 17. This is why John was arrested. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, arrested John, and bound him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John the Baptist was arrested because John's message of repentance had reached the ears of Herod. The gospel had reached his ears. And even more than that, John himself boldly calls out the adulterous evil of the highest leader of the land at that time. Now, like I said in the last section, the Herodian tree is a mess. The family is, is, is all messed up. First of all, the three Herod brothers 
in rule over Judea all had different mothers. In fact, their father, Herod the Great, had five wives. And this adulterous lifestyle that he had was further lived out through his children. Mark's gospel shows us that John was imprisoned because Herod, this is the Herod in our text, he married Herodias, who was the wife of his brother. And his brother was Herod Philip I, not to be confused with Herod Philip II. He was the co-ruler of the kingdom. So not only is that confusing and sinful, even worse, history also shows us that Herodias herself was also Herod's niece. She was the daughter to his murdered brother, Aristobulus. So Herod Antipas was was marrying his brother's wife, and she was also his niece. This is really gross, really sinful. And so John calls them out, calls them to repentance. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John's holding him accountable to the Jewish laws in his territory. Herod, even though he is, he's not historically or genetically tied to the Jews, he's from Idumea, he represents the Jewish kingdom under the Roman rule. And so John is holding him to the Jewish laws. Leviticus 20:21. 20, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. Leviticus 18:16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus 18.6, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And so John's not afraid to call out his sin. He's not afraid to call out the sin of society right up to the highest authorities. That's pretty relevant to today. He's engaging the culture. And what's interesting here is that Although his boldness infuriates this lady, infuriates Herodias, and she wants him dead. Surprisingly, when Herod was confronted by this bold call of repentance, instead of killing him right then and there, Herod fears him. He fears him. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? For Herod, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and he was a holy man and he kept him safe. Herod witnessed the boldness of John. But we see here that he also witnessed God's good character in John. He was a righteous and a holy Man, not only did he profess bold things, he also lived them out. It was verifiable. He was righteous. He was holy. He was living that repentant life that he preached. And he was calling others to lead that life as well. His, His conduct was matching his profession. And so Herod, in hearing that, kept him safe in fear for a while. So history shows us that instead of an instant death of John the Baptist, Josephus writes about this in his histories. John the Baptist was put in a prison. And the text says, our text says, when Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. John's conduct was compelling Herod and and producing curiosity in the king over this man. And so what we're seeing here is that the world... As Herod would represent the world, the world will be confronted by the conduct of Christ's people. And so we need to be faithful in our walk. We need to be faithful in our walk because it confirms the truthfulness of our talk. Our holiness and our righteousness plays a massive role in spreading the gospel to the world. That's why our foundation of evangelism here at Redemption says Word indeed. So without righteous and holy conduct, the message that we share could be invalidated. Proverbs 21.8, the way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. 
1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Romans 13.3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. John, John was not living in disobedience to the government, disobedience to the ruler, but was doing good and doing much more good through his life that is confirming his message. And so when we think about righteous and holy character of John, and then we think about our own lives, we need to ask ourselves the question, is my conduct holy and righteous? Is my conduct, is my behavior holy and righteous before a watching world? Is my life boldly matching the message I am sharing? We see that by the example of how John confronted Herod. His conduct perplexed him. To the point that he would want to hear more from him. He would hear him gladly. So when you're thinking about your family and, and your friends, your co-workers, your, your fellow students. Is the message that you're sharing in your life matching the message you should be sharing with your mouth? Has there been a transformed life? Is there noticeable change in you? Can they see it? You know, when I used to work in the oil patch, the oil patch is a rough place. Working with men out in camps for weeks on end is not a pretty place. It was rough. Filthy conversations, lewd joking, many temptations. But as God began to change my life then and there, my my participation in those conversations changed. Those jokes all of a sudden weren't so funny. The temptations began to change as well. And God was transforming me, and it was noticeable. People around me began to change how they even acted around me. There's great power. There's great power and witness to the watching world by the testimony of our transformed lives. As righteousness and holiness are lived out for the world to see, the message we share penetrates the hardest hearts. So how do we apply this specifically to us today? Well, I'm thinking about this in three ways. The first is transform speech. When we come to Christ... And as he transforms our hearts, what comes out of our hearts changes, right? So how about how we speak of others? Think about your workplace or at school. Do we take part in sinful conversations? Do we take part in crude joking and cursing? Do we make fun of others at their expense? Do you stand by when bullying is taking place? Do you talk badly of others behind their back? Do you gossip? Do you complain? Do you lash out? How about your presence online? How's your online voice? What are you sharing about your life with the world? And how is that pointing to Jesus? And I love this about John, how he's confronting the leader of the known country at that area at that time. Are you speaking truth into your, your culture? This is really relevant for us right now. We're in an election, both here in Alberta and then in the future nationally as well. Where's our public voice? Especially with our government encroaching on our freedoms Our government and our country committing great sin against the unborn. Where's our voice? Governments forcing sexual agendas on our children. Where's our voice in that? So 
Sometimes it's not just, it's not what we're saying, it's what we're not saying. I find us as Canadians very passive. We're very passive in how we engage our culture. And we need to have a voice and speak up by example of John. Our speech needs to be transformed. How about our ethic? Transform ethic. What is your ethic saying about the gospel? What is your work ethic saying about your heart? Are you a dependable worker? Are you a hard worker? Are you an honest worker? Are you a content worker? Are you honest with your timesheet? Are you above board with your taxes? How about your business? Are you above reproach in your dealings? Are you letting biblical morality over, uh, overrule profit? How about our children? Are they respectful students? Are you obedient to your teachers? Are you working with great diligence and honesty as a student? How about all of us in our neighborhoods? Are we well thought of in our community? Next is transform family. What about our families? About how we discipline our children, how we train them and raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Are our are, are children being trained to behave and to respect? Are they taught to, to love those who don't look like them and don't behave like them? How about our marriages? Our marriages are huge. Our marriages are one of the most active and most prominent pictures of the gospel in the world. What are our marriages saying about, saying to the world about the gospel? So that's just three ways I think that this applies. Our conduct. By the example and the boldness of John, we need to remember that the world is always watching us. Right? As they're, as they're being perplexed by the fame of Jesus, they also are looking at his people. They're watching us. And as John, just think about John the Baptist for a minute. John was the last and final prophet. And what was his life about? His life was about pointing to the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. What are our lives saying about the lamb who takes away the sins of the world? Charles Spurgeon said this. A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Your, your life speaks volumes. And so the world will be confronted. They're going to be confronted by our conduct. And so we need to be faithful in our walk. We see that in John here. So even though Herod spared the life of John out of his own fear and also out of his own curiosity, we ultimately see next that, that shallow, shallow acceptance stands no match to the temptations of the world. And the world will be ruthless towards his faithful messengers. And we need to be confident in his way. The world will be ruthless. Verse 21, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. This is a, this is a pretty highfalutin party. This is a big birthday party. And it was made up of men. Every man who was any man of any kind of nobility was at this party. And we know that when men get together, unbelieving men, things aren't going to go well. Verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So remember, Herod's new wife, right? Herodias. He sinfully stole that wife from his own brother. 
And she is also his niece. Now we see here Herod and Herodias taking immorality to the next level. We see her daughter dancing. And it seems Herodias is out to get what she wants at any cost, even to the exploitation of her daughter. And so she dances and she pleases Herod and his guests. This has much sexual tones here, but it works. It works and it tempts. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, so in that you can see who's behind all this, right? This is Herodias working her magic here. She says to her mom, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Over half the kingdom. She wants the head of John the Baptist. And so the daughter, she immediately comes and makes haste to the king and asks, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So more than prominence, more than riches, more than anything else, Herodias wants this righteous, holy prophet, this messenger, this forerunner of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. She wants his influence, his message, his character sliced off and on a platter. Verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry. He was deeply grieved over this. Remember, he listened to the voice of Herod. And he listened to him gladly. He didn't want him dead. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Herodias got exactly what she wanted. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And so it seems, it seems here that the bold witness and the testimony of this great prophet was just snuffed out. It seems that evil has, has finally won in this case. It seems like the death of John would be a massive blow to the advance of the kingdom. It seems that way. The world wants to destroy the gospel. They don't want the gospel they don't want to have to deal with the fame of Christ's name. They don't want to have to be confronted by our righteousness, by our transformed conduct. And so the ultimate outworking of evil is to be ruthless towards God's faithful messengers. They want to destroy us. Right now in Nigeria, Christians are being slaughtered by the hundreds and thousands. In February of this year alone, Islamic terrorist groups have murdered and burned the homes of 120 Christians just last month. Christian Post says this, since, since June 2015, over 5,400 Christians have been killed in radical Fulani attacks. And this is not including deaths at the hands of Boko Haram and other factions. This is real stuff. This is happening today. This is persecution that we never experience here. It's so real there. It's so real in China. It's so real in South and East Asia. It's so real in Turkey and in Iran. All over the world, Christians are being persecuted and being killed. 
for the fame of Jesus Christ. But by the example of this ruthless death of John, by his example, the heart of the world presses, the further the gospel advances. Tertullian said in AD 197, he said this to the, to the Roman government who were persecuting Christians at that time. He said, the oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. You ever hear that saying before? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. So we think by looking at this death of John that somehow this is a massive blow to the advance of the kingdom of God, and it is not. The world and the flesh and the devil are doing everything they can to try and stop the gospel, to try and stop us. But just like we sang this morning, inspired by Romans 8, raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if God is for us? Neither height nor depth can separate us. Hell and death will not defeat us. Our God is for us. Even in death, even in persecution, more so. And so we go. The ruthless death of John the Baptist only propelled the relentless gospel all the more. According to Jesus, John was the last and greatest prophet. And his death was, cha was a changing of the guard. He's the last prophet. No longer would we need prophets pointing forward to Jesus Christ because Jesus was there in the flesh. The baton was being passed on now to Jesus' apostles. This is a big deal. It's all changing. No more pointing forward. Apostles are now pointing back to Jesus. The apostles stand today through the words of Scripture as faithful messengers pointing back to the person of Jesus Christ. And we as the church, we as the household of God, those who were called to be faithful messengers are now entrusted to take the baton of the gospel in the face of persecution Standing on their shoulders. Ephesians says that the church is built on the, on the foundation of who? On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They killed the prophets. They killed the apostles. And today hundreds of millions of Christians stand as a testimony to the power of the gospel. Think about Jesus and these 12 disciples that he sent out. The news reached the ears of the king. And he killed John in the gospel only advanced. This is God's way. This is the way he does it. In your prayers for people on the mission, often we pray, God, would you keep them safe? And that's a good prayer. But never pray that people shouldn't be persecuted. Because the persecution of Christian advances the gospel. Because the world will be ruthless and God uses it for his good. It stands as a living testimony of the power of his name. And so we need to be confident in that. We need to be confident in his way. So why are we so afraid? Why are we scared? What do we have to lose? If we are truly in awe of the glory of Jesus Christ, and if we truly understand the love that he has towards his children, and the love he has towards the lost, and how he wants to save them through 
our voices. We need to be confident that he is with us and that this is his way no matter what comes our way. So we need to be bold in our witness. We need to be faithful in our walk. We need to be confident in his way. Because the world will be confounded by the spread of Christ's fame. They will be confronted by the conduct of Christ's people. And they will be ruthless towards Christ's faithful messengers. But gospel will advance. The gospel will advance. Jesus is building his church. He said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The heart of the world presses the further the gospel advances. You're called into that beautiful plan. Let's pray. Lord, by the testimony of, of your faithful messenger, John, we see how the witness of his message combined by the testimony of his life, holiness and righteousness and his boldness to, to call out sin, to, to, to preach repentance. Lord, we see that it is actually so simple, and yet it is so profound. We also see how you use 12 disciples to reach the ears of the highest ruler of the land. Lord, we seem small. As a church, we feel small. And we look at the, the mission ahead of us, and we often feel, how are we going to even make a dent? But Lord, we know your plan. We see it here. That you are for us. Hell and death cannot defeat us. Lord, would you use us today? We have another week ahead of us. We pray that, that in our own personal study of your word and, and as we look at your, your gospel of Mark, we pray that you would be growing us in holiness and righteousness together. And that we'd be sharing that with the world. We would be on display that as they hear about the fame of Jesus Christ through our lips, they would also see his transformation on our hearts by how we live. And only you can do that. Only you have the power to change us. Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit, informed by the word of your truth, that we would follow, that we would trust you, that your ways are always best. We pray this in the name of Christ.